Welcome to the REORC Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leveraged finance, direct lending, high yield bonds, high yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, we feature a collaboration between the Harvard Law School Bankruptcy Roundtable and REORC, where REORC's Karen Lung hosts a discussion on the legality of the non-consensual, non-debtor releases of Purdue Pharma's owners, the Sackler family, into Purdue Pharma Chapter 11 cases, as well as last Monday's oral arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court on the U.S. trustee's appeal seeking reversal of the Second Circuit's decision upholding the bankruptcy court's grant of the Sackler non-debtor releases. The roundtable features Anthony Casey, the, Don- the Donald Ephraim Professor of Law and Economics at the University of Chicago, Ralph Brubaker, the James H.M. Spray Reagan Professor of Law at the University of Illinois, and William Organek, Assistant Professor of Law at Baruch College's Zicklin School of Business and Managing Editor at the Harvard Law School Bankruptcy Roundtable. And as always, we bring you our weekly summary of interesting developments in the restructuring world, as well as a preview of what's on tap for next week. We'd like to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience, so please take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. It's Monday, December 11th. Hello, this is Karen Long from Reorg's America's Core Credit Team. Today's interview is a collaboration between the Harvard Law School Bankruptcy Roundtable and Reorg. Here's Professor William Organek, Assistant Professor of Law at Baruch College's Zicklin School of Business and Managing Editor of the Bankruptcy Roundtable to tell you more. Thanks, Karen. Uh, as Karen mentioned, I'm Billy Organek, and I'm an Assistant Professor of Law at Baruch College's Zicklin School of Business and Managing Editor of the Harvard Law School Bankruptcy Roundtable. So for the listeners who may not know, the Harvard Law School Bankruptcy Roundtable brings together academic and practitioner views on a wide range of bankruptcy issues. The Roundtable has featured more than 25 posts from professors and attorneys about Purdue Pharma's bankruptcy, starting even before the bankruptcy court's approval of the company's controversial plan of reorganization. We're looking forward to collaborating with Reorg's incredible team on this important case. We're excited to partner with the Bankruptcy Roundtable and hope you'll stay tuned for our joint coverage of the Purdue Pharma case. Now, on to the interview. This past Monday, December 4th, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral argument in an appeal connected to the bankruptcy case of Purdue Pharma, the notorious maker of the drug OxyContin. We have three amazing guests with us to discuss those arguments. Before we hear from them, I just want to lay out some of the background so we can just dive in once we get to our guests. In recent years, Purdue has become one of the villains of the opioid crisis. Critics of the company and its owners, the Sackler family, say that Purdue aggressively marketed and promoted opioids even after it became clear that the drugs were causing massive addiction and harm. In 2019, Purdue filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the face of more than 2,600 lawsuits, massive liability connected to its role in the opioid crisis. And these lawsuits didn't just target Purdue. Members of the Sackler family and their affiliates were often also named as defendants. Now, how we got from the 2019 bankruptcy filing to the Supreme Court is a very long story, Uh, but the case was brought to the high court by the U.S. trustee, which is the bankruptcy watchdog program of the Department of Justice. The U.S. trustee is challenging a provision in Purdue's Chapter 11 plan of reorganization that would give the Sacklers protection from civil lawsuits related to Purdue's opioids. So after the company emerges from bankruptcy, opioid claimants will not be able to sue the Sacklers. If you're an opioid claimant, there's no opportunity to opt out of this. You lose your ability to sue without consenting to it. 
This kind of forced release is known as a non-consensual non-debtor release or a non-consensual third-party release. You'll hear both terms used, but they mean the same thing. The Supreme Court is considering the following question. Do courts have authority to approve a release of liability that extinguishes claims held by non-debtors, in this case, that's opioid claimants, against non-debtor third parties, that's the Sacklers, without the claimant's consent as part of a plan of reorganization under Chapter 11 of the Bankruptcy Code? That's kind of a big mouthful, but you can think of it as a shield from litigation. The non-consensual non-debtor release here would shield the, the Sacklers from opioid litigation, allowing the Sacklers to get legal protection from Purdue's bankruptcy, even though the Sacklers didn't file for bankruptcy themselves. What would the Sacklers contribute to the bankruptcy in exchange for the non-debtor release? Well, they've agreed to pay cash settlement payments of $5.5 to $6 billion over a period of 18 years. You'll often hear this called a $6 billion settlement, and the Supreme Court justices also referred to it as that. The Sacklers also agreed to other important concessions. They agreed to give up their ownership of Purdue, sell overseas entities, and exit the opioid business. Those who support Purdue's plan, this includes the debtors, the official committee of unsecured creditors, several claimant groups, and the Sacklers, say that the settlement contributions from the Sacklers are key to unlocking the many good things that the plan would provide. Under the plan, Purdue would be transformed into a public benefit company owned by governmental creditors. Billions of dollars would flow to trusts that would deliver funds to different types of claimants to address the opioid crisis. Non-consensual non-debtor releases are legal, the plan proponents say, and they're appropriate in this case, where the plan would provide life-saving benefits to people across the country. In May, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit sided with the plan supporters. It found that there is authority to impose non-consensual non-debtor releases under the Bankruptcy Code, specifically for the bankruptcy nerds among us, Sections 105A and 1123B which the court saw as the source of broad equitable powers. Purdue's plan should be confirmed and the Sackler releases should be approved, the court said. The U.S. trustee appealed, asking the Supreme Court to reverse the Second Circuit. The U.S. trustee challenges the Second Circuit's interpretation of the bankruptcy code, among other arguments. The U.S. trustee also continued to point out that the Sacklers have agreed to inject $6 billion into Purdue, but they received over $10 billion in cash and $1.4 billion in non-cash transfers from Purdue between 2008 and 2019 when the company filed for bankruptcy. The Sacklers are just returning a fraction of their ill-gotten gains, the U.S. trustee says. The Supreme Court heard arguments this past Sunday, which brings us to our illustrious guests. Professor Ralph Brubaker is the James H. M. Sprayregan Professor of Law at the University of Illinois College of Law. Professor Anthony Casey is the Donald M. Ephraim Professor of Law and Economics at the University of Chicago Law School. And you met uh, Professor Organek earlier. Professor William Organek is Assistant Professor of Law at the Zicklin School of Business at Baruch College of the City University of New York. Thank you so much for joining us. First, I'd like to ask about your view of the case and non-consensual, non-debtor releases generally. What do you think is the right result here? Uh, let's go to Professor Brubaker first. Uh, thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so for the past 25 years or so, uh, 
I've been studying and writing about uh, these non-consensual uh, non-debtor releases uh, that give non-debtor defendants uh, who've not filed bankruptcy themselves uh, essentially the equivalent of a discharge from all of their mass tort uh, liability uh, through this uh, so-called release approved by the bankruptcy court that parallels the discharge that a debtor gets uh, through the bankruptcy process, complete with a permanent injunction prohibiting the mass tort plaintiffs from thereafter suing the released non-debtors, thus forcing those mass tort plaintiffs to pursue their claims solely through the bankruptcy process against a settlement pot uh, comprised of the bankruptcy debtors' assets that go into the settlement pot, plus uh, amounts paid by the released non-debtors into that settlement pot in exchange for their uh, releases. I've been one of the most uh, persistent and vocal critics uh, of uh, the practice, um, and we don't really have time to talk about uh, all of the many grounds on which I think uh, they're both uh, unlawful and uh, bad from a policy perspective to boot. Uh, I've written hundreds and hundreds of pages analyzing uh, all of the various uh, issues implicated uh, by these non-debtor uh, releases. Uh, but the quick thumbnail sketch on um, the, the unlawfulness um, of these non-debtor releases uh, is first and foremost, there's nothing in the bankruptcy code that expressly authorizes uh, these non-consensual non-debtor releases out of uh, outside of some uh, limited exceptions in asbestos cases. Uh, so the federal court's uh, creation of what is essentially um, a federal common law jurisprudence uh, for when non-debtors can be discharged from their debts through these uh, various factors that they have promulgated um, that violates the separation of powers dimension of the bankruptcy clause, which vests in uh, Congress uh, and not the courts, uh, the power to decide uh, the circumstances under which uh, somebody's debts uh, can be discharged. Uh, and the federal common law discharge power that the courts have sort of created uh, of their own accord uh, through uh, this non-consensual, non-debtor release jurisprudence also runs afoul of the constitutional aspect um, of what's known uh, as the Erie uh, Doctrine, which uh, in the bankruptcy context is known as the Butner uh, Doctrine, uh, which implicates both uh, constitutional uh, separation of powers and uh, federalism uh, principles. And those constitutional limitations on the federal court's uh, common lawmaking powers in bankruptcy are directly incorporated into the Supreme Court's pretty extensive and well-developed jurisprudence regarding the limits of bankruptcy courts' uh, inherent equitable uh, powers, which is the principal uh, and really the only uh, plausible source of authority that's proffered uh, for these uh, non-debtor uh, releases. The statutory provisions uh, you mentioned, the Supreme Court has said, uh, those are just complementary grants of sort of a residual equitable uh, power. Uh, in addition, you can't really justify um, these non-consensual releases uh, as a settlement uh, because uh, 
the settlement doesn't comply with uh, the, the the strictures of the due process clauses of the Constitution. Um, so, so individual claimants have uh, a due process ownership right uh, in their cause of action uh, against uh, these non-debtor uh, entities. Uh, and the Supreme Court has well-developed jurisprudence with respect to the due process rights um, uh, with respect to those uh, claims. And in, in this kind of um, aggregate resolution uh, process, um, what they've said is there there are uh, two two fundamental prerequisites to the ability uh, to bind somebody to that sort of aggregate resolution process. Uh, first, uh, there has to be an adequate, unconflicted uh, litigation representative uh, uh, who's uh, duly authorized uh, to uh, sort of prosecute those claims uh, on behalf uh, of the claimants and settle those claims on behalf of the claimants. Well, Supreme Court said in the bankruptcy context uh, in 1972 in a case called Kaplan v. Marine Midland that uh, state fiduciaries, um, they don't have any uh, standing or authority to uh, assert uh, those sorts of direct uh, claims that creditors have against uh, a third party. Um, so they don't have any, they don't, they don't have any authority to, to compromise those claims uh, either. Um, and uh, the Supreme Court's also said in this kind of aggregate resolution process um, that with respect to money damages claims, which is uh, what's invariably uh, involved with these non-consensual non-debtor releases, uh, at a minimum, uh, claimants have, have to be given a right to opt out of that aggregate resolution process and pursue those claims uh, on their uh, own. Uh, so, so, so you can't justify this as uh, as a settlement because it, it's a settlement that violates uh, fundamental due process principles. Um, and lastly, um, both the district court and the Second Circuit in the Purdue case itself held it's unconstitutional for non-Article three bankruptcy judges to enter a final judgment on these third-party non-debtor claims that are being extinguished via uh, non-debtor releases. Nobody challenged that in the Supreme Court. Um, so so only an Article III district court has the constitutional power to do that. And the Supreme Court has linked that right to final judgment from an Article III judge with the Seventh Amendment jury trial right. Uh, so to the extent that these non-consensual non-data releases are extinguishing uh, legal actions for money damages, which they invariably do, they violate uh, claimant Seventh Amendment right to uh, a jury trial uh, on the claims that are extinguished, regardless of whether the approval comes from a bankruptcy judge uh, or a uh, district court uh, judge. So, so that's a summary of the grounds on which I think it's just it's just unlawful, uh, and the bankruptcy judges uh, are, do not have the power uh, to uh, approve these non-consensual uh, non-debtor releases. Uh, in the absence of uh, an express grant of that power by Congress. Mm. And Professor Brubaker, so you've told us at a high level why you think these releases are unsound on a statutory and uh, constitutional and policy basis. Is it also fair to say that you think in this case, the deal is just not a good one for opioid victims? Well, you know, not a good one compared to what? Uh, mm -hmm. is sort of uh, the question. Um, I mean, the ultimate question is, well, this deal was, was negotiated uh, on the assumption that you could do this. Um, the, the relevant question is, well, what happens uh, if these go away? 
um, uh, I think it's hard to say what happens if these uh, go away. A completely different deal would have been uh, negotiated. Um, uh, yes, it couldn't have uh, it couldn't have uh, forced claimants uh, into a settlement of their claims against uh, the Sacklers. Um, but right, um, consensual. Uh, nobody's challenging the ability to of the bankruptcy courts to approve uh, consensual releases. Um, which is which is the basis on which uh, these aggregate settlements are done uh, outside of uh, bankruptcy because it's the basis on which they have to be done uh, outside of uh, bankruptcy. Um, and when these aggregate settlements are uh, uh, proposed, there are extremely high uh, levels of uh, acceptance uh, of those uh, deals. So it doesn't mean you can't do aggregate resolutions uh, anymore. It just doesn't mean that you can't uh, impose those resolutions on non-consenting uh, claimants, uh, you're going to have opt-outs, right? You're going to have to deal uh, with the opt-outs, but you're still going to be able to settle, right, uh, uh, the, the overwhelming majority of these claims, uh, even in conjunction with a debtor's plan of organization. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, and uh, just so listeners know, Professor Brubaker uh, was among a group of law professors who submitted an amicus brief to the U.S. Supreme Court in the Purdue appeal. So, you know, for those who are curious, they can read the brief to learn more about these arguments. Uh, next, let's move to Professor Tony Casey for your thoughts on non-consensual non-debtor releases in this case. Professor Casey. Great. Uh, thank you, Karen. So you know, I, I take a very different view to this from uh, where Ralph comes out and was on a brief on the other side of the issue. So I'll kind of lay out where I think the um, authority lies in the code and what the arguments the debtor made. You all, know, before I get into that, I'll note Ralph raised a lot of important, interesting arguments that just aren't haven't been put before the court by the parties. So I want to start with the statutory point, which have that's where the, the case has been focused. Um, it, and then I'll talk a little bit about some of the other points he raised. But you, know, if you just start from the first principle, of like is there a statutory grant? The you know the simple question in this case is is whether eleven twenty three b six is that grant. Uh, the eleven twenty three b six is a very short provision. It says quote a plan or plan may include quote any other appropriate provision not inconsistent with the applicable provisions of this title. Now, Ralph said one view of that is it's just the residual catch-all that's just supposed to be there in case there's something, you know, ministerial that was missed by other provisions. Uh, I don't think that's the right reading of that provision. I think that's the right reading of provisions like 105A, which other courts have relied on. But the Second Circuit really didn't hang their hat on 105A. They hung it on 1123B6, and that's where the debtor is focused and the uh, creditors committee and others supporting the plan. Now, if you read 1123B6 in isolation, you say, well, that, that's just very general language, and it, it grants them the court either residual authority or the authority to do anything under the sun. The, the real crux is it's in Chapter 11. It's nowhere else in the code. It's in Chapter 11. It only applies to a Chapter 11 plan of reorganization. Now, that's important because Chapter 11 has a special rules for approving plans. And the special rules are really found mostly in 1129. So 1129 is a long list of things that have to be true for a plan to be approved. It has to be fair and equitable. It can't unfairly discriminate. It has to treat creditors better than they would be treated in a Chapter 7 liquidation. It can't be elite, it can't violate uh, regula regulatory uh 
provisions. It has to be proposed in good faith. It's a long list of checks on what is allowed to be approved. And 1123b6 and 1129 work together to say, you can put these things in a plan. That's what 1123b6 says. 1123 says other things beyond what b6 says. You can put these things in a plan. And then there's going to be a process to approve that plan under 1129. And if that process is followed and the votes are there, we approve the plan. And when you read it that way, 1123b6 makes a lot of sense to say, you're allowed plan proponent. And this isn't the court here. This is the debtor or, you know, in theory, if exclusivity was lifted, anyone writing a plan. You're allowed to put in there anything that isn't inconsistent and with another provision. But we're going to then run that plan through our process, which includes a vote. And so when the Supreme Court stated the question, I think they stated it very abstractly, but as a practical matter, we aren't asking whether or not we can approve these releases without anyone's consent. We're asking whether we can approve these releases when there's been a process and a vote and the majority, and in these cases, these mass tort cases, it's always an overwhelming supermajority of the claimants have approved. And so then it gets into a different question of, you know, can we bind the holdouts? So in Purdue, for example, of those who voted, it was something like 110,000 voted, 106,000 or so voted in favor of the plan. Can we bind those 4,000 holdouts, that three or 4% to the settlement that's included in the plan? That's the way I view the question, the debtors argue the question. And that's the way I think when you view it that way, the code starts to come together and you say, yeah, you can propose things in a plan as long as there's a no provision that says you can't. And then you got to make sure that plan is fair. You got to make sure that plan doesn't unfairly discriminate. You've got to get the votes in place. And that's the way the kind of debtor is arguing for the statutory structure. And the way I think of it is 1123 plus 1125, I'm sorry, 1129 make a lot of sense together to allow this authority so that we can further settlements. And that's what chapter 11 is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be binding holdouts so we don't destroy value. So we don't destroy companies that could go, go on. So we don't lose valuable settlements. And the core principle, it, it, I think either A or the core principle of bankruptcy is dealing with collective action problems. And we have here a collective action problem in that you know 96% of the claimants in this group want this deal and 4% don't. Now, in that 4%, there might be those who you know, legitimately want something different. They want their day in court, not their payout. There might be those who think they can get a higher payout elsewhere. And then there might be a few others who think we can pretend to be holdouts and try to get more in this deal. And you know, I, I think the negotiation over the appellate process where the amount went up and a lot of that amount went up to pay off state attorneys general shows how that works is if I'm a sophisticated holdout I can try to get more and more and more in a world where you can't bind me. And so bankruptcy is intended to solve that holdout problem. 1123b6 read that way with the constraints that 1129 place on it fits into that structure and is why my view is that the statute does allow for these type of releases in this context. Now, if you accept that argument, Ralph's points about federal common law and Erie, I think, go away because then 
you're saying Congress granted this authority and so we don't have the problem of separation of powers. It was a congressional grant. If you don't accept my argument, then those issues come into play because if it was just made up by bankruptcy judges, yeah, I agree with Ralph, that's a problem. Um, but if, if there's a statutory grant, those arguments that he raised kind of go to the side. Now, he raised a very important argument that I've been surprised more people haven't pointed out along the way. And that's his point about Kaplan v. Uh, uh, Midland Marine. So uh, this case says the trustee can't bring suits again. I'm sorry, the, the bankruptcy trustee can't bring suits that uh, non-debtors would have had against an indentured trustee. And you know they don't own those claims. But this is where the fact that 1123b6 is in chapter 11 really matters. So you can, this structure in my mind is consistent with everything bankruptcy is supposed to do. The trustee can't just take claims and do whatever it wants with them from non-debtors. It, it doesn't have that right. So if it says, I'm gonna take claims that you were gonna bring and litigate them and then I might settle them before I propose a plan, no, the trustee cannot do that. But the trustee can put in a plan, a provision that says, hey, all of you with these claims, this is what we got for you, the $6 billion. You can vote on whether or not you want to give up those claims. And so that's the, the step from you can't, they don't have the, the trustee can't bring those claims on its own accord, but it can settle them not on its own accord, but with the process of chapter 11, with the voting and with the controls of 1129, which say, you know, all of those creditors, there has to be a judicial finding that they did better in this deal than they would have done in a liquidation. And that finding would require, and did the bankruptcy judge did talk about this, what you are likely to get if you pursue these claims outside of the plan and without bankruptcy. And so that then I think wraps up that part of what Ralph talked about. Um, he, he raised then the due process argument. And, and again, this has been hinted at by the trustee in appeal, but they really didn't want to go full full force on it. Um, and the Seventh Amendment argument. And, you know, you are entitled to process for sure, but the bankruptcy court is giving a process. And the question, the Second Circuit looked at it and said, well, what what is due process? And this this was one where the court went through all of these findings of fact and all these hearings, and they put forth this seven-factor balancing test. And then they noted something that I think is important is if you say, as Ralph said, well, you have to be able to get a jury trial. That's true regardless of whether the claim is against the debtor or a non-debtor. So the question there is whether or not the class can vote for a plan that brings those holdouts along. And if you say that the jury trial is such that you can't do that, the jury trial right, you can't do that for the non-debtor claims, I don't see a distinction of why you can do that for the claims against the debtor either. And the Second, second Circuit said that. They said that that finding, if we went down that road, would put into question all of discharge and bankruptcy, which would put into question the entire bankruptcy code. So, you know, it's not obvious that Ralph is wrong. It's not obvious that he's right in my mind, but it is obvious that that argument has been implicitly rejected by the fact that we've had plans being confirmed with votes of classes binding holdouts 
since 1978 and before under the previous um, provisions. So that that's kind of how I think about those claims. And again, this was not played out before the court because the way the parties briefed it. The last the last point I'll note, um, Ralph importantly pointed out Stern v. Marshall, and the Second Circuit made it clear that they don't think a bankruptcy judge has the power to approve these on its own, which meant that the district court, or in this case, it's the appellate court actually, because the appellate the district court reversed. So it was the Second Circuit was the Article Three court doing the work here. Uh, and they said there were no factual questions, so they didn't have to do a de novo fact finding. But you need an Article Three court to sign on to this. Um, what that does and the reason that hasn't been challenged is that simplifies this appeal. Because if, if the court had to decide whether or not, it had to decide two questions, whether or not these are allowed and then which court has to do them, that would have been a much longer briefing and more issues coming up. If the court of Supreme Court affirms here, the rule will implicitly be that the district court has to do a de novo finding that releases meet all the requirements um, that are in issue. And what that does in my mind is take this out of any Stern v. Marshall question and out of the question some people want to say like, oh, why would we give this power to a non-Article III court? We're not. We're giving it to an Article III court, the district court. That's the question the Supreme Court is asking is, not whether a bankruptcy court, but whether a court in a bankruptcy proceeding can grant these releases. And, you know, technically speaking, every bankruptcy case starts in the district court. That's the way the jurisdictional statute is written. It's automatically referred to the bankruptcy court. But under the Second Circuit's reading, the releases would not be final or approved until the district court had done a de novo review. So the question is just simply whether or not a, an Article Three court in a bankruptcy proceeding can approve these releases. And my, my view, and I think consistent with the debtors and the um, res other respondents' view, is the statute allows that with that 1123. The protections come through 1129. Uh, and that gets us most of the way past all the um, constitutional arguments Ralph raised. The lurking one that people talk about is, you know, is this allowed by the bankruptcy clause? And no one has argued that in the Supreme Court. I think one amicus mentions it. Um, that would require a, what is the meaning of the bankruptcy clause and getting into kind of originalist questions. And I think the history supports the originalist argument that the bankruptcy clause does allow these releases. Um, but the bankruptcy clause is not very specific and it's a very short phrase. So, um, you know, we, if we go down that route again, we're back to what the second circuit said is asking lots and lots of questions about everything bankruptcy courts do. Is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? And I think to avoid that the Supreme court has since the 1800s taken a very capacious view of what is allowed by the bankruptcy clause. Um, but again, though that that issue is not being argued for the court, really the policy and statutory arguments to what they heard in the oral arguments in most of the briefs. So, so if I could just quickly, I want to I, I want to leave time, yeah, for, of course, for, for Billy, of course, uh, but just to respond. Uh, so, so notice that uh, Tony uh, is forcing eleven twenty three b six and this uh, admittedly very vague provision to carry a lot of water. Uh, here, 
uh, and and these constitutional provisions are are relevant to the statutory interpretation issue because notice if you conclude this that Congress has authorized this, all of these constitutional rights that claimants have uh, across a whole series of constitutional provisions magically disappeared, which is a structural reason and a reason as a matter of statutory interpretation to require an express grant of power in the bankruptcy code uh, for this kind of discharge. Uh, for 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 it for 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 the court to find that 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 there is a grant that's eliminating all these uh, constitutional rights, there is no such express grant uh, of power, and it's just asking too much to try to read that out of eleven twenty three b six and all of these eleven twenty nine powers. Those were all right uh, designed in the context of claims against the debtor, not claims against uh, non debtors. Uh, I think I think it's just not plausible to say that Congress intended 1123b6 to authorize non-debtor uh, releases in 1978. That was unheard of uh, in 1978. So I'll just stop there uh, because uh, we we need to hear from we need to hear from Billy. But, but there's just... a relationship between these constitutional uh, provisions and the and the statutory interpretation and how you go about interpreting these vague general provisions. My only one sentence response would be the phrase not inconsistent with applicable provisions is a very particular phrase that I think is very intentional and specific. And it's not like a 105A catch-all phrase. It's this is anything's allowed if you can't find me a provision that doesn't prohibit it. And that's intentional. I, I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're going to move on to Professor Organic. But just, just before that, I just want to pause on two of the provisions that our guests have been discussing so far, because I didn't spell them out in uh, the introduction. And I think it might be confusing for listeners who are not familiar. One provision that's at issue is section 105A of the bankruptcy code, which states that the court may issue any order process or judgment that is necessary or appropriate to carry out the provisions of the bankruptcy code. So that's that's a provision that we talked about a lot. And the other is section 1123B6, uh, which allows chapter 11 plans to include any other appropriate provision, not inconsistent with the applicable provisions of title 11. So these, and the second circuit uh, read these two provisions together to conclude that non-consensual non-debtor releases were permitted. I just wanted to get that out there before uh, we move before we move on. So next we'll hear from Professor Organek. Sure, thanks so much. Um, you know, I think that uh, in hearing all of this argument about the kind of text of the bankruptcy code, uh, you know, it, it demonstrates the importance of, of course, trying to make sure that you're hewing to exactly what the bankruptcy code allows and, and in the context of what the constitution allows. Um, but I, I kind of look at this case and, and one of the reasons why I think it is so challenging uh, and, and puzzling and interesting is because I think it speaks to maybe a more fundamental question of jurisprudence, right? To the extent to which judges should really only be deciding this case or kind of worrying about the larger systemic impacts of their rulings. And I think that this is this really kind of boils down to both what the law requires, but also, you know, what the best policy uh, was. So, you know, in 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 my view, 
Uh, I actually think on the law, Ralph has the better of the argument. Um, you know, I think non-debtor releases are difficult to defend uh, for the reasons that Ralph kind of outlined. I think that the provision that you just explained in 1123 B6 uh, is just not, it's not specific enough to kind of grant this type of power. It relates to, uh, it seems structurally to relate to everything in the bankruptcy code is talking about what a debtor can do with respect to its creditors. And so to kind of incorporate in uh, what can be done with respect to non-debtors and, um, you know, what they want to do with their creditors just seems in my mind to be going uh, a bridge too far. Um, you know, we haven't really talked about the um, the way to think about 524G also. So 524G uh, is a provision in the bankruptcy code that does specifically authorize these third party releases. It does so with a set of kind of two pages of requirements, and it does so only in asbestos cases, and it only permits it for certain kinds of non-debtors. And so, you know, there are arguments, I think, on both sides about the extent to which we should read 524G and say, well, Congress could have done it, you know, elsewhere and been more explicit about it, and it wasn't. Uh, I think, again, there are arguments on both sides, but I think what's telling about 524G is just the fact that it has so much detail at all. It seems weird to say, in my mind, that we're going to have so much detail only for asbestos cases, uh, but we're going to kind of allow anything uh, basically that isn't specifically prohibited by the bankruptcy code just so long as creditors vote on it. Um and then I think kind of getting to the, so that's my view, you know, non-consensual, uh, non-debtor releases, tough to justify under the statute of the bankruptcy code. Um, but I think that this is really also a policy matter and it relates to kind of what would be best. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, that boils down to two separate questions. So one Kind of would it be appropriate to have third party releases in cases where there's been, you know, evidence, maybe even substantial evidence, uh, compelling allegations of misconduct on the part of the Sacklers? Uh, and so you run into the issue of whether um, third party releases really can be appropriate in this kind of case uh, and be appropriate for individuals like the Sacklers who are running and managing the company instead of you know, perhaps maybe they're appropriate for third party insurance companies, maybe they're appropriate for lenders to uh, types of individuals or, or entities rather that are mentioned in 524 G. And, um, you know, when there is such a compelling uh, set of evidence about this type of misconduct, both misconduct in the marketing of the opioids and misconduct in kind of shifting assets or stripping assets away from Purdue, the company in advance of a potential bankruptcy filing, it's potentially quite problematic uh, that these parties would be entitled to a release. And then, of course, there's the broader question of if it's allowed here, and we've kind of laid a roadmap out here for the Sacklers, who I think um, there is a lot of evidence that they did a bunch of bad things before the bankruptcy and then leading up to the bankruptcy, then are we really kind of giving a free pass to a lot of potential companies, a lot of potential mass tort feasors as a way to get around their um, their liability. 
Um, so, right, I think on the facts, the Sacklers releases kind of present this pretty offensive trade-off, which is of the Sacklers' own making, forcing victims to choose, you know, a few thousand dollars of recovery, while, as you mentioned, allowing the Sacklers to walk away with billions of dollars. But the trouble here is I don't know what the great alternative is. And so this goes back to something Ralph uh, mentioned, which is, you know, is this a good deal? Good compared to what? And this, I think, would be my point of departure uh, with Ralph, uh, which is, you know, the idea that the victims are going to somehow get a better deal, uh, that there might be any kind of better deal available, that everything would be okay if just the Sacklers filed for bankruptcy. I think that kind of plan or that kind of idea or thinking really doesn't make a lot of sense. I think that um, the statutes of limitations issues, the way the Sacklers divided their ownership of Purdue, uh, the presence of so many of their assets in offshore spendthrift trusts really makes it difficult to uh, then see some kind of litigation uh, as a meaningful alternative. And so if it's not, then are you really doing better by the victims? Aren't you potentially just wasting a bunch of resources and time that everyone agrees would probably be better spent on opioid abatement? Um Right. So in the end, I kind of think the right legal result is to strike down these releases for a lot of the reasons that Ralph kind of highlighted. Uh, but I think that it might not leave, unfortunately, victims better off. It might leave them worse off. And it's pretty important to remember why it is that the victims would be worse off. It's because of the um, kind of asset stripping that occurred prior to the bankruptcy. I could comment on two points. Um, the 524G point, I think, is is worth delving into a little bit. So 524G, as Billy said, provides a very specific uh, set of rules for third-party releases in asbestos cases. And, th and the reason is that in the Johns Manville case, uh, they had struggled with how to settle asbestos cases. And the bankruptcy courts had come up with this structure of settlement funds and releases. And then Congress authorized it. Um, and, and I think as Billy suggested, there's a lot about insurance companies going on there. Now, there are two reasons, though, to think that 524G doesn't tell us anything about this case. One is when Congress passed the statute, they they enacted language that specifically said, and I don't have I don't have in front of me, I'm paraphrasing here, but said nothing about the fact that we're passing this statute can be used to tell you anything about the court's ability to enter other injunctions. And that's in the statute. Now, it's not legislative history. That, that's a, a congressional directive. So that tells us we're supposed to ignore it when deciding this case. And then just as a kind of drafting exercise, you'd have to think the following to think 524G prohibits this. Congress saw that a bankruptcy court in an asbestos case had experimented and pushed the envelope and really liked the outcome. And so Congress said in 524G, that outcome's allowed, but never do that again. That this is not the way they were thinking about this. Rather, they were saying, okay, this works for asbestos. Let's make sure it's clear so we don't have a case going to the Supreme Court on it. We're telling you nothing about what other cases are. So in my mind, that just gives you 524G is, is tells us almost nothing. Although if Ralph's most extreme constitutional arguments are problematic for releases, the ones about due process or bankruptcy clause, 
that applies to 524G as well, not the Erie federal common law stuff, because that's a statutory provision. But if we don't think the court can bind people without a jury trial, then 524G is out the window on the constitutional arguments as well. Uh, so I so I, I don't think that's correct, because, again, it, it all depends upon if bank, if Congress has a discharge power that they can apply to non-debtors, uh, they can apply to non-debtors and um, all the constitutional rights that otherwise uh, attach go away. Um, so it, it, it again, it, it's all about the statutory authority. The reason that there's a due process problem uh, is Congress hasn't expressly uh, authorized that. And, and the respondents in this case we're essentially making that argument. They're saying, well, this isn't really a discharge, right? Uh, because they don't want to get into, right, the fact that courts are creating a discharge power that Congress uh, hasn't expressly authorized. They said it's just a settlement. Um, well, yeah, well, if it is a discharge, yes, all those things go away, right? Uh, but then when they say, well, but these, these due process um, uh, arguments don't apply because uh, we're in bankruptcy, well, it's either a bankruptcy discharge or it's a settlement. If it's a settlement, it's got to apply, uh, comply with all of these other constitutional rights like the Seventh Amendment and uh, due process. Uh, so again, uh, Tony's right. It all gets back to the statutory uh, uh, authorization uh, argument. But again, um, operating in the background of that is all of these uh, constitutional rights. Uh, and I think that, and Justice Gorsuch uh, spent a lot of time on this during the oral arguments, I think in thinking about uh, does the statute uh, uh, authorize this or not, increasing the bar for explicitness of the grant of this sort of power is a structural protection for all of these constitutional rights. So uh, what I want to, that's very interesting. I don't think that's the way the government thinks about it, the way Ralph said, because they have a constitutional avoidance argument that says you shouldn't read the statute to grant this authority so that you avoid the ar ar constitutional arguments. But what Ralph just said, which I agree with, is if the statute does grant the authority, the constitutional questions go away. So in some sense, the constitutional avoidance argument is backwards. It's if there's if 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 1123b6 does the same as 524g and grants the authority, if that means there is no due process, no Seventh Amendment problem, um, the constitutional questions go away, which I, I think that's right. I'll, I agree 100% with Ralph. If you don't think the code authorizes these things, they're not allowed. So it all turns on reading that one provision. But the government made a different argument where they're like, you should read the provision to not allow them to avoid constitutional arguments. But it, Ralph I, was saying something different is if it if the code allows it, those arguments go away. And I, I think that is right. And so we just get down to our different differences on 1123b6. But those th those differences have to be right, filtered through this lens of all of these constitutional protections that go away if you if you find that Congress has made uh, this grant and gives you a reason uh, to not lightly uh, infer that from uh, language that is less than explicit. Right. And and just to kind of add one thing, you know, so I think Tony's exactly right about that other kind of uh, congressional directive. Don't read into the ability uh, to do this under 524G anything about the other powers. But you'd have to kind of ask yourself, why would it be that Congress would make this two page long statute with all of these requirements for asbestos, but not for any other mass torts. There are some differences between asbestos mass torts and other kinds of mass torts, but 
I don't think those relate to those relate to things like future claimants. I think I don't know that those really relate to the identity of the types of people who should receive third party releases or even the ability to receive third party releases in the first instance. Right. If we want to kind of make that clear, let's make it clear in the code. It does seem strange to me that we're um, just going to rely on one vague provision supporting another vague provision in order to uh, allow third-party releases, but then in 524G have a two-page long, very detailed authorization statute explicitly talking about injunctions and um, channeling and everything else. Uh, so now we're going to move on to the arguments before the Supreme Court. Before we do that, I just wanted to draw out one thing that uh, Professor Organic discussed, um, which is that in the debate over whether this is a good deal for victims, uh, Professor Organic mentioned that victims might be receiving as little as a few thousand dollars. And I just wanted to mention that, uh, you know, we, we mentioned before that under the plan, different trusts would receive funds and those funds would be uh, funneled to different types of claimants to address the opioid crisis in various ways. There is a trust for personal injury claimants that would receive up to $750 million subject to certain, you know, uh, minuses for costs and things like that. And it's estimated that an eligible personal injury claimant would receive between $3,500 and $48,000. So critics uh, of the settlement have said, well, look, this really isn't a lot of money for someone who may have suffered massive harm because of addiction or lost a family member to an overdose. Uh, also, the the question of misconduct haunting the case and uh, the transfer of Sackler assets into overseas spendthrift trust is obviously a question that the Supreme Court justices cared about a lot. Uh, so let's move on to those Supreme Court arguments, which happened on Monday. And first, let's go to Professor Brubaker. What did you make of the arguments? Um. So, so I, I was at the arguments, and the, and the arguments are always fascinating. Um, at the end of the day, though, I, I think people place probably place too much emphasis on oral arguments in trying to predict what individual justices are are going to do. Most of the justices um, probed both sides, um, uh, and and they're just they're just trying to inform themselves. Um, uh, and and uh, uh, sort of tease out um, the, sort of uh, the limits on arguments and how far it takes people and what are limiting principles and so forth. Um, it, it's just a it's just an open uh, discussion. Um, there were a couple of justices I think that sort of tipped their hands uh, on where they're leaning. I thought Justice Gorsuch and Justice Jackson in particular um, pretty clearly indicated they're strongly leaning toward uh, reversal and finding no power. Uh, to do this. Um, with respect to all of the other justices, they sort of uh, raised issues on both sides, probed both sides, or said nothing particularly um, uh, revealing. So I, 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 th I, th I always say that if you want to try to get a good assessment of how you think the case is going to come out, just read the briefs um, uh, and ignore oral argument. I think that's probably also a good uh, a good way to, to try to predict what's going to happen in this case also. Uh, Professor Casey, what did you think? What did you find interesting or surprising? 
So I'll, I'll start with, I'm optimistic by the last thing Ralph said, because I was very optimistic that the side I think should win, should win after reading the briefs. Um, I think the the uh, debtors briefs make the statutory argument very clearly. And I thought the governments did not. I'm less optimistic after the oral argument. So if I can put that out of my mind, I, I feel like the case will come out the correct way. Uh, as Ralph said, I think Gorsuch, definitely Jackson and probably Barrett all tipped their hands. Like they sound like they want to reverse. I thought Kagan and Kavanaugh came out pretty strong on the likely to affirm side. And then I agree that the rest are really, really hard to read. Um, I, what I'm going to say next, I, I counter with, I've never argued in front of the Supreme Court. I imagine it's horribly stressful and difficult, but I felt like none of the lawyers gave the justices the answers they needed and were looking for. So I, I don't think... You know, the oral argument is good for seeing where the justices were going in, but I don't think they were convinced of anything or, or were given the answers to the questions they needed. And one thing I, I, I think about that is a lot of appellate lawyers talk about, oh, you have your point and you return to your point and you keep your theme. I don't think this is that type of case. This is a, these are generalists trying to understand a very complicated foreign system. You need to dumb it down and explain it to them in very simple terms. And when they ask a question, you need to hear that question and say, what are they asking that a non-bankruptcy person would be asking? And that's where I felt like none of the three lawyers really got the point home. And so they left a lot on the table. For example, um, you had said something earlier, Karen, I think no one is, or maybe as you were, but I can't remember, so in one of the questions, no one is contesting consensual releases. Well, Justice Thomas asked that. He goes, why not? And you know, that's not a silly question. I think some people are like, what does he mean? Of course you can have a settlement on the side. But what he was asking is when the settlement is in the plan and it's among 110,000 people who've got to check a box to either opt in or opt out, why are you allowed to put that in the plan? Do you need a statutory provision to put that in the plan? Does an 1123B6 give you that? That was not answered. I don't know what the lawyers think the answer to that question is. It was kind of, oh, consensual contracts must be okay. Yeah, but can they be in the plan? And then, you know, you're going to want a court order like a consent decree on that settlement. And the Stern v. Marshall question, does it have to be the bankruptcy judge or the district court when it's a consensual settlement? And what are they getting in? You know, what the consideration that they're getting is the plan. So their agreement is not going to say I settle my claim. It's going to say I settle my claim subject to the plan. Now, someone said to me after, well, maybe they they're, they're just saying you should do side deals and side settlements, but those open a whole nother box and this whole line of cases about gifting. So Thomas wanted to dig into that. They didn't go there. Um, Roberts and Alito asked about the major questions doctrine, which is a doctrine the court has taken mostly in the administrative context saying, similar to what Ralph was saying earlier, like we don't, allow these big changes in vague terms and just let agencies decide what to do. And the government was like, yeah, we're not going there. Now, there's strategic reasons for other cases why they're not going there. And there's a big question of whether that doctrine would apply to bankruptcy courts, but they didn't argue it, which kind of flagged in my mind one of the arguments about the trustee having standing. I think the trustee does have statutory standing to appeal to the Supreme Court. As a policy matter, it would have been nice to have had a petitioner up there who had 
a real interest in the outcome of this case and who didn't care about the government's position on major questions doctrine. And when asked about the constitutional avoidance argument, they kind of said, well, we don't think we need to get into that. We either, wave hands, there's a due process problem. I don't think you can make a constitutional avoidance argument unless you're ready to say, here are the constitutional questions you should be avoiding. The, they didn't answer those questions. That's on the government side. On the flip side, I, I can't remember who it was. It was maybe Jackson or, or Kagan kept asking about why the deal will fall apart without the releases. And this was the lawyer for the creditors committee. And he wasn't really explaining. And she, the ask, question was answered repeatedly. And then even Kevin, I think softballed it up again for them to try to help get the answer out there. Um, and you, you need to get into what Ralph was talking about earlier, the dynamics of the bargain and like without releases, this bargain looks totally different with releases and no question about whether or not they're allowed this case looks totally different as well. So this case, we were litigating in an uncertain world. Without releases, I think the state attorneys general get less. I'm sorry, if, if releases, if we can know that releases are allowed, full stop, the state attorneys general get less and the victims get more of the pie and the negotiations different. If you can't have releases, the state attorneys general get more because you have to settle with, they're more important among the opt-outs. Same with sophisticated lawyers. All of that was wrapped into the question. I think now it was, I think it was Barrett. The question, like what what, what falls apart? Why, why is this so bad if we don't have this deal as a policy matter? And I just didn't think the lawyers put that out there and got that across. So in the end, I left thinking, okay, I know where five justices are, two on this side, three on this side. I don't know where the others are. I don't think anyone was moved by the argument. And I don't think the questions that they had were answered. Uh, just to spell something out that Professor Casey mentioned earlier. So the the debtors and the unsecured creditors committee here have argued that the U.S. trustee lacks standing to bring this appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, one of their arguments on this point is that uh, the U.S. trustee lacks a financial stake in the outcome of the litigation uh, and the non-debtor release here wouldn't harm the U.S. trustee. Therefore, uh, the U.S. trustee lacks standing. And they have argued basically this case shouldn't even be, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court shouldn't even have taken this case. And they have asked for the case to the uh, case to be dismissed. Uh, so if the Supreme Court um, adopts that argument, then it would uh, basically reverse its decision to take the case. Um, of course, the U.S. trustee disagrees and says, you know, there are, there are a line of circuit court cases that show that I do have standing to appeal, even in the absence of a financial stake. Uh, so let's move to Professor Organek next for your remarks on the arguments. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think that there were, uh, I mean, I, I'd think about kind of two things maybe that were revealing in the argument. Uh, so one was this kind of argument of textualism versus policy. I think that there is a lot of uh, commentary about the court. It's a conservative court. It's going to be a court that, you know, kind of really is is hewing to the statute uh, and thinking about this in a textualist manner. And certainly 
uh, the discussion that we've had uh, today has been about, well, it all turns back to the statute. What does 1123b6 allow? Uh, but there were a lot of questions, and they really were both from conservative justices and from liberal justices about these broader policy questions, as was kind of just being highlighted. What happens if the deal falls apart? What is the better alternative here? Uh, what kind of might happen for the victims? Even the question of standing, to some extent, the way it was framed by Justice Kavanaugh um, was he was really talking about, you know, why does the government care about this? And it's particularly interesting. This kind of leads to my second point, uh, which is this kind of conflict between, right? So the first one was this conflict between textualism and the kind of policy ideas. And the second one is really this, this conflict, I think, between the victims uh, on the one side and the government on the other side. So, you know, Tony made the point um, that if there, if we were in a world where we knew that releases uh, were not possible, then potentially uh, you would have more money available for states and less money for victims and vice versa. If you had releases that we knew were available, you would have less money for states uh, and more money for victims. I don't know if the evidence bears that out because when the releases were approved by the bankruptcy court and then later struck down by the district court, you had uh, a new settlement come into play where the state attorneys general got more money uh, there wasn't less money given to the victims, but I think that if it's reversed, uh, it's not immediately clear why the state attorneys general would all of a sudden come in and agree to less money and the victims getting more money because from the start, uh, the victims were given this kind of fixed pot of money, as, as Karen mentioned, $750 million plus or minus, uh, whereas the, um, the states were getting this uh, kind of pot of money that depended on the amount of the insurance claims and also the potential terminal value of her due as public benefit company. So it's not immediately clear to me whether that bears out. But the I think the broader point is, right, this idea, who does the government really represent in this case? So on the one hand, uh, you have the United States trustee and a, a department or an agency or a, a division within the Department of Justice that is bringing this claim supposedly uh, to improve the recovery of victims, to improve the application of the uh, bankruptcy system kind of writ large. But the reason why the whole structure exists as it was is because another division within the Department of Justice decided to settle a massive claim that it had against Purdue Pharma, which was a first priority claim and which was large enough to swallow up all other value that all other creditors would have gotten. It agreed to settle this claim, but only if in exchange certain uh, facts were met, including that Purdue emerges as a public benefit company to be owned by the states, and ultimately that these releases uh, you know, were going to kind of be a part of the deal. And so, you know, I think when the justices ask, why is another part of the same Department of Justice arguing on the other side, it does speak to the importance of making sure that you have um the ability to uh really have individual representation in these types of cases uh the justices asked would the um would the department of justice agree to commit to settle their claims against the company if the deal fell apart and the uh department of justice demurred and basically said we're not going to commit at this point right so uh you know i think the idea of what's the government's role here 
the victim's role here. Why aren't other victims opposing the settlement? Uh, you know, it did come out in the argument, of course, that um, there was overwhelming support among the creditors that voted for the settlement. But of course, fewer than half of individual victims voted for the settlement. So, you know, that kind of uh, is is another interesting aspect, too. And I think it would be really interesting if this case somehow turned on the role or the intention of the federal government uh, in these cases. This, this, I mean, this is all very interesting and it goes back to the earlier point about, right, uh, do, you, do you view these sorts of questions as systemic questions or do you view these sorts of questions about this case? I view it purely as a systemic uh, issue and you can't view it uh, uh, with respect to this case because this case, uh, as Tony says, it was negotiated under circumstances where there was an assumption that these things probably are permissible. Um, the, the, that's the whole question, right? Is this permissible or not? Can you negotiate a deal uh, that includes these uh, or not? Uh, if they go away, um, the negotiation dynamics are completely uh, different. So you can't decide this question based upon what happened in this particular case and what, what, what would happen if you blew up this uh, particular uh, uh, deal. You have to decide it on the basis. Um, it's a systemic issue. Uh, and it's, and it, you know, statutory interpretation questions um, are always systemic uh, uh, issues. So one thing we've been talking about is the division of the pie between different types of creditors. And I thought several justices seemed to suggest that if the Sacklers filed for bankruptcy themselves, then the the size of the pie overall might be bigger. And uh, they, they asked about why it is that the Sacklers, who, as they said, would be required to put all their assets on the table in an individual bankruptcy, uh, should be permitted to just put six billion, you know, plus plus other concessions in this uh, under this plan settlement. Uh, but the UCC, you know, the committee's council told the justices that, well, if the Sacklers filed for bankruptcy themselves, the total amount of bankruptcy eligible assets in that scenario would be just one billion dollars. I was wondering uh, what you made of this argument, especially Professor Organic, because uh, you know you've you've written a lot about what a hypothetical Sackler bankruptcy would look like. Yeah, sure, happy to jump in. Right, so um, it's important to kind of remember when we talk about the Sacklers filing for bankruptcy. Right, we kind of kind of think from first principles. What does that mean? So the Sacklers aren't one person; they're dozens of individual. They're spread individuals, they're spread all over the world. Uh, they have a variety of different assets. Each of them has their own assets. Many of them weren't even involved in the running of the company at all. There were really only about, say, 10 or maybe a dozen who were involved in any kind of particular part. And the rest were just family members who, you know, were fortunate to be born into a wealthy family. Uh, you have all of these assets spread all over the world. Many of them are in spendthrift trusts, right? And to um kind of remind people who may not be familiar, spendthrift trusts are these entities that uh, are meant to serve beneficiaries. Uh, and the spendthrift part of it means that they're not easy for creditors to access. They're in fact really difficult for creditors uh, to access. And that's permissible under US law. Uh, it's also permissible under the law of other jurisdictions, specifically uh, UK law here. So the um, 
the kind of European branch of the Sackler family has a lot of assets stored in these spendthrift trusts in uh, the Bailiwick of Jersey, which is an island off the coast of the United Kingdom. Uh, and it's like nearly impossible. Uh, there was an expert report in the case that talked about the many, many different steps that you would have to go to in order to try and get a single dollar out of any of these spendthrift trusts, right? And spent trusts generally aren't eligible to file for bankruptcy. So if all of these assets are in trusts rather than held individually, you wouldn't even be able really to file these uh, trusts for bankruptcy, right? I think one other thing to think about when, uh, maybe two other things to think about when thinking about kind of what does a Sackler bankruptcy mean, right? So another, uh, a large portion of the assets of the Sacklers are held in interests in companies that uh, sell opioids. So Purdue Pharma and kind of other international entities that license from Purdue Pharma. Uh, these are spread across multiple branches of the company and multiple branches of the family. Um, and the interests are such that you need majority approval from each of the branches of the family in order to be able to undertake major actions. For instance, stopping the sale of opioids or selling the company to some kind of third party. So if you just seized the small percentage owned of these companies by the kind of active in the opioid business Sacklers, you wouldn't have the power to really run the company. And therefore, these interests would actually be worth a lot less than the kind of value of the companies on paper, right? So uh, all of these kind of structural issues exist to make it really difficult to see what a Sackler bankruptcy would even look like, and if they filed for bankruptcy, whether assets would really be able to uh, be brought into the bankruptcy. Uh, and I think one kind of final point on that um, is this idea of statutes of limitations, right? So the kind of everyone seemed to agree throughout the case that the largest claims that could be brought against the Sacklers were these fraudulent conveyance claims, fraudulent transfer claims, basically in the run-up to the bankruptcy for years prior to the bankruptcy, the Sacklers took billions of dollars out of the company, and they shouldn't have done that because they should have known, given the residual opioid liability, that the company was actually bankrupt, right? Uh, so they take this money out, but there's a statute of limitations as to how far back you can look uh, when talking about these potential fraudulent transfers. And so it really seemed to be that the value of the settlement seemed to capture, uh, I think in court, they talked about 97% of the total kind of available fraudulent transfers when accounting for the statute of limitations. And so this idea that you'd be able to have more recovery if the Sacklers just filed for bankruptcy, I think you actually would have less recovery if the Sacklers filed for bankruptcy. And I think, you know, I agree with everything Billy said. It's worth noting, too, that that filing, let's just assume away the dozens problem and the international problem and say there was, uh, you know, five Sacklers in the U.S. who filed for five bankruptcies. That doesn't solve anything, right? That that you still need releases. And you can look at the um, cryptocurrency bankruptcies to see this. So block FIAS claims against FTX, FTX. FTX has claims against BlockFi and their claimants have claims against each other. And Three Arrows filed for a British Virgin Islands liquidation. And they've asked for, well, they've rescinded it now, but earlier they had asked for a six-judge hearing 
uh, to get the four chapter 11 judges, the chapter 15 judge and the BVI liquidator all in one hearing to resolve the claims that all the different crypto asset companies have against Three Arrows. That's what a Sackler filing looks like. It's all right, where are they filing? It's do they file in the US? Do they file in Europe? How do we coordinate? And the victims now are bringing claims against each estate and the estates are bringing claims against each other. And then you're going to have to resolve those with a settlement that's going to need releases, right? That's It doesn't solve anything. It just changes the dynamic and, and a different person litigating. And there was also, a, it came up an oral argument about the fact that there was an indemnity agreement. So in theory, the Sacklers have claims against Purdue. I, I think it's right that those would be pretty weak, but they are at least the possibility of diluting this estate, but then that money goes back to the Sackler estate where the same victims have claims. It's it's very messy. I, I just It doesn't get anything more simple. And then add to it everything Billy said about, and it might get you fewer assets, not more. I don't think any of the Sacklers would ever file bankruptcy. There's not anything that they would get out of it because they couldn't um, discharge the prospective liability for fraud or willful and malicious uh, uh, injury. Um, they would do everything to avoid uh, filing uh, bankruptcy. There would, I don't think that would. That's a realistic possibility. I'd also like to ask the professors what they made of the U.S. trustees' argument that you don't need non-consensual third-party releases to resolve mass tort liabilities. So uh, counsel for the U.S. trustee referred, for example, to the PG&E cases uh, where you didn't have a forced release and also the proposed Arrow settlement, which would resolve liability uh, related to the uh, combat arms earplugs. So, you know, I've thought about this one quite a bit. Um, the first starting point needs needs to be that it, it must be absolutely true that not every mass tort case needs a bankruptcy and not every mass tort case needs non-consensual releases. That's not the same as saying we never need them. Um, one thing to note is in cases where you have non-consensual or you have consensual releases, that raises a new question of whether they can be opt-in consent or opt-out consent. And the government has in all of the various chapter 11s where they've made a uh, taken a position said that opt out consent is not enough opt in is required now, so to my order in the argument goes i i don't know why opt out wouldn't be fine but i think if we have this case re remove third party releases as a non consensual third party releases we end up in a world where the next battlefront is opt in versus opt out so that that's one question the other thing i'd like to say on 3m i just it's very important for people to understand how that case settled and why it's settled outside of bankruptcy. So in bankruptcy, you have these third-party releases and they're getting all the entities and all the related parties into the deal and you bind the holdouts. Um, in 3M, they said, we'll do a deal. And I can't remember it was 97 or 98% had to sign on. And it includes releases for all the affiliate entities, and it, it has the same type of provisions that a bankruptcy release would have. Uh, the question is, how did they get to that level of consent? It's important to read the settlement agreement. So the lawyers promise to recommend to all claimants that they will, should accept the settlement. And then they say in that agreement, if any party that we represent refuses the settlement, 
we will take all necessary action to immediately disengage and stop representing them. And that's important because what they're saying is we're going to get consent by threatening our own clients to not represent them going forward. So in a bankruptcy with the non-consensual releases, the holdouts get the deal whether they like it or not. In a settlement outside of bankruptcy, they're told, if you don't take the deal, every lawyer in the country who's ever worked on this case has promised not to represent you. And so this goes back to kind of the, you know, Ralph was saying earlier, the compared to what? Like, what is it you get if you don't get this deal? That's what MDL settlements look like. That's what the Vioxx settlement looked like. That's the way they get consent because no, none of the defendants are willing to settle these without near global consent. And so, you know, I, I think it's a little disingenuous for some to say, oh, look, there's these other options. You have to say, well, are we okay with those other options? And this is not a statutory point. But that, that creates, of course, market opportunities in the market for legal services. And I've seen in some of these other aggregate settlements uh, where right, uh, clients are put to this difficult choice, uh, either take it or don't have a lawyer, where other lawyers step up and say, We'll take all those cases. Um, um, if if there there if there are good cases on the merits, there are going to be lawyers who are going to step up uh, and, and take those uh, cases because uh, that's what lines their pockets. Um, and and I, ju I just don't think the world comes to an end, even in mass tort cases, if we get rid of uh, non-consensual non-debtor releases. Um, even without uh, these non-consensual releases, you can still fully reorganize the debtor. Uh, even without addressing uh, third-party non-debtor claims at all. Uh, the plan process and the debtor's discharge gives the debtor everything it needs to fully reorganize and shed any liability that it has, even any indirect liability uh, on those third-party non-debtor claims by way of contingent claims for contribution indemnification that are made uh, over by the non-debtors against uh, the debtor. Um, most, if not all of those contingent, uh, contribution indemnification claims are disallowed under the bankruptcy code, uh, in section 502E1B. And even if they're not, uh, they're still pre-petition claims, right? So they get whatever they get and they're going to be discharged, right? Um, of course, if, if you've got many hundred and even thousands or hundreds of thousands of those contingent contribution indemnity claims, quantifying the extent of the debtor's liability on those can be a challenge. So, so there are lots of benefits from trying to resolve as many of the related third-party non-debtor claims as possible in conjunction with the debtor's uh, bankruptcy case. And just in general, there are always lots of judicial economies and efficiencies in resolving related litigation together in the same place through one judicial process rather than uh, splitting up related litigation between different court systems and even more so for mass tort litigation. But there's still plenty of tools to do that in bankruptcy, even without non-consensual non-debtor releases. Uh, and I talk about this in um, one of my articles uh, that came out uh, last year, but just let me out just outline just a couple possibilities that take advantage of uh, temporary non-debtor stays, which the Supreme Court has explicitly signed off on in the Celotex case, and consensual uh, third-party releases, plus the very broad uh, related to bankruptcy jurisdiction over these kinds of third-party non-debtor claims, 
And there is a unique and extremely powerful consolidation power with respect to personal injury, wrongful death, uh, uh, tort claims um, in Section 157b5 of the Judicial uh, Code. So one possibility is the mass tort bankruptcy starts in the conventional way uh, with a very broad preliminary injunction covering all of the third-party non-debtor claims that the debtor and related parties want to resolve in conjunction with the bankruptcy case. And they then use that breathing spell to negotiate uh, an aggregate settlement to be implemented uh, through a plan. Uh, but of course, as regards direct third-party claims against non-debtors, uh, if right, non-consensual releases go away, claimants are going to have to have a choice to agree or not to the settlement with respect to their claims against the third party, the same way that aggregate non-bankruptcy settlements work. And non-debtors can, of course, condition their participation on certain threshold percentage of claimants accepting, just like they do in non-bankruptcy aggregate settlements. And that kind of proposal typically gets uh, very high acceptance percentages for some of the reasons that Tony's uh, already mentioned. And then with respect to claimants who do not take the non-debtor settlement, right, who are also the ones uh, who will most likely not agree to just take the matrix amounts on their claims against the debtor and will insist on their right to a district court jury trial, even on their claims against the debtor. Well, bankruptcy has a very powerful mechanism for a mandatory consolidation of all of those third-party non-debtor claims in the same district court that's going to have all of the litigation against the debtor. And that's this provision in section 157b5, which gives one district court judge in the home court bankruptcy district the power to transfer all of those third-party non-debtor claims to that district. So it's sort of like an MDL consolidation, but it's actually much more powerful than an MDL consolidation in a couple of different ways. Uh, one, an MDL consolidation is only for pending federal court cases and cannot be used to consolidate state court cases. Well, bankruptcy, though, has a much broader removal power than for non-bankruptcy tort litigation that makes it possible to remove any and all third-party non-debtor claims that are related to the debtor's bankruptcy case out of state court and into federal court and then consolidate them in the home court bankruptcy district using 157b5. And the second way that a 157b5 consolidation is actually much more powerful than an MDL is that an MDL consolidation is only for purposes of consolidated and coordinated pretrial proceedings. A 157b5 consolidation, though, is for all purposes, including trial and judgment in the district court in the home court bankruptcy district. So bankruptcy gives that district court the ability to mandate a super MDL process in that district for all of the opt-out litigation against both the debtor and non-debtors, right, as a way of uh, managing that litigation, also perhaps facilitating a second stage aggregate settlement of the opt-outs. And then another possibility for this kind of 157b5 uh, super MDL consolidation is that you do not wait until the plan proposal and confirmation stage to do the 157b5 consolidation. Instead, you do it on day one of the case, right? Instead of getting a 
preliminary injunction for all the third-party non-debtor claims that you want to try to resolve. You just do an immediate comprehensive removal paired with a 157B5 consolidation motion in the district court. And if granted, you don't even need the preliminary injunction because all of those third-party non-debtor claims are going to then be pending in that district court with automatic referral to the bankruptcy court, right? For the bankruptcy court to then manage this sort of super MDL process as a means of developing and facilitating a proposed aggregate settlement of the third-party non-debtor claims to be proposed in conjunction with the debtor's plan of organization. And then after confirmation to manage all of the back-end opt-out litigation against both the debtor and the non-debtors. So there's still lots of potential ways to use the bankruptcy process to manage and resolve this mass tort litigation, not only against the debtor, but also against non-debtors. I'll just like, I love everything Ralph just said, and I think it's right. Um, But once we view that that's the way the structure is set up to allow all that, it's a tiny leap to say that 1123B6 says at the end of the day, the district court can then approve a plan when everyone settles that binds that 3% of holdouts. Like the structure looks like, wow, like, look, they created this massive structure to do this the right way. And all, and that just built feeds into, and here's one way to end it is with a vote of 97% in this super MDL and they bind the holdouts. And that's a tiny leap once you accept what Ralph said, which I do, but I don't think a lot of the folks who are supporting the trustee in this case, they would find all kinds of things to object to with what Ralph said. Not a tiny leap given the constitution. (laughs) So Professor Brubaker, you've told us uh, why you believe that the bankruptcy code already contains the tools to resolve mass tort liability without the use of non-consensual non-debtor releases. I think our listeners might be wondering, why haven't I heard about those tools? Is it because we live in the world of third-party releases? Yes, (laughs) that's the answer. (laughs) Those tools have been used uh, here and there uh, over uh, the years. Um, Actually, one of the uh, biggest obstacles probably using those tools is um construing the scope of subject matter jurisdiction in bankruptcy at the outermost limits is a is a mess because of a third circuit decision back in the 80s called PECOR. PECOR is, is horrible. It's a horrible decision, but it's been the most influential on construing third party related to uh, jurisdiction. Um, it's actually been construed much more broadly in the context of third party non-debtor releases. Uh, and it's actually uh, should be construed as just a grant of conventional supplemental jurisdiction, which would sweep in uh, essentially all of these related claims against uh, non-debtor uh, uh, entities. Um, and, and that's another issue that I think the, probably warrants attention from the Supreme Court because the, the confusion regarding uh, third, par- third party related to jurisdiction doesn't just affect uh, these big mecca cases. Um the the paycor test test screws up things like well can can a bankruptcy judge in a consumer case that's hearing a non-dischargeability objection uh once if the bankruptcy court finds that uh there's a a, a debt that's non-dischargeable because of fraud and they've sort of litigated that yes the debtor engaged in fraud so they can't discharge this debt can the can that judge also go ahead 
uh, and enter a money judgment uh, on the fraud debt so that uh, the creditor can go ahead and uh, collect from the debtor's uh, post-bankruptcy assets. PACOR would seem to say no, uh, although all the courts have basically said yes. Uh, so so construing the scope of uh, uh, federal bankruptcy jurisdiction is incredibly important uh, across all of these uh, issues, and it's kind of a mess. Uh, and I wish the Supreme Court would address that also. <laughs> so I'd also like to ask the professors about, you know, the broader implications of this forthcoming decision from the Supreme Court because um, you know, I think some observers are scared that we're gonna get some kind of blanket ruling that outlaws and bans third-party releases, which of course are very common in large corporate reorganization plans. This isn't just a mass tort issue. Uh, can you say more about why this decision is important? I mean, uh, Tony, I opened up the New York Times this past weekend and I saw that you said that this is the most important bankruptcy case to go to the Supreme Court in the 30 or 40 years. Then I got scared and closed the newspaper. Sure. So as, as you said, they're very common. Um, and I, I, I mean, I can't think of a large Chapter 11 that didn't have some sort of non-debtor release. Now, some of them are consensual. Some of them are non-consensual. And, and I mentioned earlier, uh, the next battlefront will be the opt-in, opt-out consent if we have a ruling that says non-consensual are, are not allowed. And, you know, for example, all the crypto cases have this issue. And in, 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 I think it was BlockFi where they had an opt-out release, the U.S. trustee objected. The judge said, well, you know, the notice was sufficient. There was actually 10,000 opt-outs. So that was, that was, pro that was consent, they said. But now that, that's the battlefront in those cases. And you, you see releases used in all these various cases and in different, it, um, for different topics, so like private equity fund that, that is a, a, a alleged a fraudulent transfer because of an LBO, they settle that, they want releases for the fund and the directors. In a lot of those, the opt-out is okay because there's um, it, 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 it's easier to negotiate a global settlement with some opt-outs because there's a cap on the liability. In the mass tort, it's really problematic because you, one claim could be, you know, the, the entire with punitive damages could be the entire amount. So that's why it's more important in mass torts, but it comes up in every case. And, you know, in the immediate future, we should watch cases like the church diocese ca uh, cases and the Boy Scouts. So the Boy Scouts is a very complicated settlement where you have multiple entities and multiple insurance companies and the releases get the insurance companies the comfort that they're not going to get you know, the plaintiffs going after uh, an unrelated entity that then comes after the insurance company for indemnity. And so they say, you need to release the local churches, the local rec centers, the local chapters, or anyone who the plaintiffs might come after. And then we, the insurance companies, put money in. And it it's a complicated web. And they're watching this case. They filed a brief in this case. Those types of settlements could go out the window. Uh, and then you'd see it in these other cases, especially if the court said opt-in was required, then you're going to have, I mean, I think Ralph's right. Their lawyers come up with ways and they develop tools and we'll see different strategies, but it, it's going to be really complicated for all of these chapter 11 cases to figure out how to get a settlement when you can't bind the holdouts to the multiple defendants involved. 
but 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 not all releases are going to go away. So so the the core insurance company release uh, that's protecting claims against property of the estate because the insurance policy or proceeds of the policy is property of the estate. You can clearly uh, enjoin claimants from going after the proceeds of an insurance uh, policy, which is all the insurance company uh, really cares about. Uh, insurance company saying, well, uh, you should protect these people who might come after the uh, policy. That's just sort of belt and suspenders. If you've got an injunction prohibiting them from going after the insurance company for the policy uh, proceeds, uh, that's all the protection uh, they need. And the bankruptcy court clearly has the power uh, to do that because the policy itself is property of the estate. Well, I mean, in, in Boy Scouts, there's multiple insureds, so who aren't all debtors. And that again, creates the complicated question of it's not necessarily property of the estate if it's a multiple insured. But uh, the, the, with respect to property and taking possession of property, there's also sorts of non-bankruptcy interpleader uh, mechanisms, right? When, you, when you've got the property in the court, the court can do all sorts of things to protect that property. And when the property itself is sort of a claim against the insurance company, that means protecting the insurance company. I think just one thing I would add to this would, uh, you know, I'm, I'm generally of the opinion that bankruptcy is going to adjust in some way. Uh, you know, I think that there is a good argument that you need some kind of uh, coercion mechanism, whether it's a release, whether it's the 97%, uh, you know, Vioxx style or, or Arrow style settlement. Uh, I think you need some kind of coercion in order to prevent um, a holdout problem, a lemons problem, a kind of problem where only the strongest suits are the ones that opt out and then kind of deplete assets of the estate. Um, I think, though, the problem with that and not in a world where there really aren't releases is... Um, it goes back to the identity of the people that are suing. So if the people that are suing are just individual victims, then that's one kind of thing. And to use uh, Justice Kagan's, I think, words in the oral argument, the company can probably deal with a one nutcase loan holdout, right? Um, I think that, uh, you know, putting aside whether that's the appropriate characterization of, you know, a victim of the opioid crisis, uh, I think the bigger problem is if your one loan note, nutcase holdout is the state of California because the attorney general realizes that if they make a case against the opioid company or they make a case against a plastics manufacturer and they make a case against ExxonMobil or whomever, then they're going to write AG stands for aspiring governor. So they're going to be able to kind of make the next um, the next kind of political leap. And then if you don't have this type of mechanism, I worry that you can kind of further politicize uh, or further weaponize even the use of litigation in mass torts to extract settlements that don't necessarily benefit the people as much as they benefit the political careers of the people who are pursuing these cases. And that's a good point. And that's kind of a separate problem. But uh, I don't have any problems with uh, holdout power as long as the value that allows them to extract is commensurate with their substantive rights. Uh, holdouts uh, are only a problem if they are able to extract um, uh, power, extract value that's disproportionate to the substantive value of their rights. Well, 
I, I guess I would just disagree only because it's not just a matter of is it proportionate to their substantive rights? It's also is it proportionate to their resources, right? So say California is going to be able to take that case forever. They might have a parent's patriae claim and they could collect, you know, a couple of hundred dollars or whatever on behalf of individuals, but they can litigate that case for as long as AG so-and-so thinks that it's valuable from a political basis. Which may be an indication that in that case, they're, they're, uh, they can extract value that's disproportionate to their substantive rights. So I think our time is coming to an end. And let's conclude by asking our guests for their best prediction of how the Supreme Court will rule. A dangerous exercise, I know, but just your best guess. I think uh, I think it's just implausible that this court is going to find that 1123b6 authorizes this. I I remain optimistic, as I said, and even more so after Ralph telling me that uh, the oral arguments don't don't uh, indicate the outcome. I think on the briefing, the statutory argument is strongly in favor of the debtor. Um, I think the middle of the court, and and I ultimately think. The conservative justices, particularly because the government didn't bite on the few arguments they wanted to hear about, like major questions doctrine, I think you'll get a, a slim majority there. But I'm, you know, uh, I don't, I wouldn't bet a lot of money on it because I, I'm very. I think this is going to be a close case. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a close case. I think though it will come out uh, in favor of striking down the releases. Um, you know, basically for all the reasons that we that we discussed, I think maybe the more interesting uh, question that the justices alluded to is kind of then the now what with Purdue uh, is really important to Ralph's point. It is, of course, systemic. It matters. It's statutory interpretation. Uh, the more this is available, the more companies will potentially use it. But uh, what happens in this particular case? How much do people go back to the drawing board? Do all the settlements between or among all of the states fall apart? What does the federal government decide to do? Uh, but, you know, to the narrow question, yeah, I think they're going to be struck down, but I think it'll be close. And that brings us to the end of our interview. Thank you so much to Professor Organek, Professor Brubaker, and Professor Casey for joining us today. Thanks so much for having us. Great being here. Great being here. Thank you. For in-court coverage this week, we take a look at Mitel Networks, Endo International, Wesco Aircraft, WeWork, FTX Group, Genesis Care, Air Methods, and Sunlight Financial. At a hearing on Tuesday, New York Supreme Court Justice Jennifer Schechter indicated that she will deny motions dismissed not participating lenders' contractual challenges to Mitel's October 2022 non-pro rata up-tier exchange. The judge, however, said that she'll dismiss the non-participating lenders' implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing fraudulent transfer and tortious interference claims and participating lender Nuveen's cross-claims. Justice Schechter is the latest New York trial judge to allow claims challenging up-tier exchange liability management transactions to proceed to discovery, following similar decisions in the Trimark, Board Riders, and Serta Simmons cases. The Endo debtor said they, would, they had resolved several significant disputes in mediation with the U.S. Department of Justice over the federal government's opposition to the company's Section 363 credit bid sale to first-line creditors. Debtors said they are now in a position in which they may be able to exit the cases through a sale or consensual plan that includes certain sales in the near term. On December 6, the Encore Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors filed a redacted motion for standing to bring claims related to financing for the debtor's 2020 take private transaction, 2022 up-tier exchange transaction already challenged by the 2024-2026 formerly secured note holders, and 2021 amendments to the debtor's pre-petition ABL facility. 
The UCC maintains that the claims could result in avoidance of over a billion dollars of obligations and related liens, recovery of hundreds of millions of dollars fraudulently transferred, and substantial damages for a breach of fiduciary duty by directors and officers. WeWork's proposed restructuring support agreement would result in SoftBank and an ad hoc group of note holders owning the vast majority of reorganized equity according to reorg's analysis. Equity splits will be likely be determined by negotiations with landlords over lease rejections because additional draws under letter of credit facilities as a result of lease terminations would increase SoftBank's claims under the DIP facility. For more in-depth coverage of WeWork, please reach out to a REORG representative. On December 7th, the U.S. government objected to the FDX Group's debtors' motion to estimate approximately $24 billion of tax claims asserted by the IRS at zero. The government argues that FTX cannot resolve its federal tax liability through estimation and calls the debtor's proposal for an estimation trial in February wholly unreasonable. FTX should be required to mediate the tax dispute, according to the government. On, on December 6th, Judge Marvin Isger approved the Genesis Care debtor's entry into a $261 million dip-to-exit financing facility for a majority group of lenders under the original dip loan and a related backstop commitment agreement. The court overruled an objection for minority pre-petition and roll-up dip lender Tiger Alternative Investors, which last month voted its Class 3 SVA and swap claims in favor of Genesis Care's plan. Air Medical Services provider Air Method's prepackaged plan was confirmed by Judge Isger at a consensual hearing on Wednesday. Judge Isger lauded the parties for securing unanimous support for huge restructuring in less than 45 days in bankruptcy. Judge Mary Waller confirmed solar point-of-sale financing company Sunlight Financial's prepackaged chat of plan on December 5th. Sunlight Financial emerged on Wednesday. Travelport, Lumen Technologies, Hornblower, Michaels, and IK Partners ran out this week's crop of near-term restructurings and refinancings. Travelport announced that a group of existing equity holders and lenders have agreed to invest $570 million of new equity into the company. The new investment is being made pursuant to an agreement that will significantly deleverage and strengthen the company's balance sheet. Following comp- completion of the transaction, Travelport will have a new ownership structure composed of Travelport's existing equity and credit investors, including Elliott Investment Management, Davidson Capital Management, Canyon Partners, Sirius Capital, and other leading institutional investors. At a series of recent conferences, Lumion Management said that one of the company's top priorities is to close its transaction support agreement on December 31st, with a focus on getting the revolving banking group to support the agreement. As previously discussed, the TDSA moves the majority of the company's matur- maturities to 2029 or 2030, decreases the company's 2027 debt burden to $4.6 billion from nearly $10 billion, and increases its cash interest expenses by exchanging sub-4% debt for 10% to 11% notes. The company has added that it has built-in basket capacity as well as covenant flexibility to deal with other portions of capital structure not included in the TSA, and says that as soon as the TSA closes, the company can start to address other portions of the structure. Ailing crews and ferry operator Hornblowers engage in discussions with lenders led by strategic value partners to determine whether the company will restructure through a Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing or out of court. The Crestview Partners-backed company and lenders have exchanged RSA term sheets. Lenders to Hornblower regroup with Millbank as legal advisor and Perla Weinberg Partners as financial advisor to address loan maturage in 2025 and a potential liquidity shortfall. Michael Stores reported late Monday that its adjusted EBITDA dropped 1.3% year-over-year to $131.3 million on 4.16% revenue decline to $1.15 billion. The retailer predicted that adjusted EBITDA would slide in the third quarter because of weak sales in August and September. The results turned out to be better than the worst-case range of $110 million to $115 million. After the quarter ended, the company's sponsor, Apollo Global Management, designated a subsidiary, MeCraft, a new marketplace platform funded with $65 million in cash. MeCraft has zero EBITDA. iCare Partners continues to wrestle with liquidity crunch, with its cash balance dropping about $8 million at the end of the third quarter. 
On November 29th, the company disclosed quarterly pro forma adjusted EBITDA of $39.7 million, down from $55.8 million the prior year period, and LTM pro forma adjusted EBITDA came in at $144 million. Revenue rose 4% year-over-year to $433 million. Top Red Stories this week concluded, Bankruptcy Courts increased scrutiny of planned releases ahead of Supreme Court's consideration of Purdue appeal. Judge Lopez emphasizes the novel nature of Jackson-Walker fee disputes, questions which court best suited to determine how any return funds would be distributed. Acetaminophen Products Liability MDL Court takes under advisement motions to exclude plaintiff's experts. High-yield market rebounds on tighter rates and spreads as investors gear up for year-end. And now here's Kate Thomas from New York with the week ahead. Welcome to the week ahead. My name is Kate Thomas, and here are a few highlights from the upcoming week. A longer schedule of the week's events can be found on the Reorg website under America's Week Ahead. Kicking things off on Tuesday, the Amherst debtors are seeking approval of their disclosure statement. The debtors filed amended versions of their plan and disclosure statement last week after, quote, disastrous, unquote, results from their consumer brand asset sales. Prepetition lender Forrest has agreed to fund the debtors through a January plan effective date subject to budget restrictions and the addition of certain plan terms. On Thursday, the Rite Aid debtors head back to court for a second-day hearing, featuring final approval of their $3.45 billion dip facility. The Rite Aid debtors are also seeking authority to, quote, self-finance, unquote, the $575 million MedImpact stocking horse bid for pharmacy benefit manager Elixir over an objection from the U.S. trustee. On Friday, the Voyager Aviation debtors have their planned confirmation hearing. In November, the debtors said that they hoped to reach a fully consensual plan and filed an amended restructuring support agreement with holders of over 99% of their secured notes. That's it for the highlight reel. For more on the week ahead, check out America's Week Ahead on the Reorg website and have a great week. Thank you again for tuning in to the Reorg Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great week and see you next Monday.